And if you have your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, I would ask you, um, so I'm going to ask you to do something that we don't typically do. We don't typically do. So we're going to be in two different passages of Scripture today. I know. People are giving me those crazy eyes, all right? We're going to be, and we need to be in both passages of Scripture because we have to see a full story of something today. This this account of a specific individual. And so if you would, I'm going to ask you to please turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. The book of 2 Samuel, Old Testament. Um, we have to look at an interaction, an encounter today between two men. And then we're going to jump a little bit later into the book of Psalms. And, uh, and we'll pick up the rest of the story. And so uh, we are in week number five, week number five of this series, Not a Fan. And so we have looked across the board at multiple different aspects of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and not just a fan. And so we saw a very clear uh, call in Scripture to stop living both in the church and in the world. We saw this very, very clear call in the book of First Kings. We, we have looked at the rich young ruler and what it means to have the things, to keep the rules, but actually not have salvation. We, we have looked at what it means to value God's word and how God's word will actually sanctify us. And when we are sanctified, we look more like Christ. Now, as I was preparing this sermon, I was wanting to give us a little bit of a case study this morning. A godly man in the Bible who struggled with sin, struggled with obedience to God's word. A man who was voiced as being a man after God's own heart, and that is the man David, a wise king. And yet he still struggled with his old nature, his flesh. And so before we dive into this passage and see what happens here, I'd like to tell you about something that unusual, something unusual that occurred um, in New York City. In 2006, so it doesn't seem like that far uh, ago in time, I was a junior or so, maybe I was a senior in high school, when this article came out in the New York Times. And it was written uh, by a woman um, in regards to something that was happening in Manhattan. And um, there were two women by the name of Laura Barnett and Sandra Spannon, and they would dress themselves from head to toe in complete white. And they would go um, out to a street corner um, on, on 44th Street in downtown Manhattan, and they would beckon people to come to them to unburden their souls dressed in completely white. Now, Laura would then silently flag people and get the attention of any person passing by and ask them to please come. And as, as they would come, she would hold up a sign that said, air your dirty laundry, 100% confidential and free. And as she would hold this sign up, people in droves would walk up to Laura. And as she would walk up to them, she would hand them a clipboard with a blank sheet of paper, a pen, and an envelope. And on that envelope was stamped the word secret. People would come and they would write down all sorts of things. Executives, street people, couriers, secretaries, shoppers, joggers. Everyone would come to write down their sins and their secrets. They would seal it in this envelope, they would hand it back to Laura, and they would be on their ways. And as this article continued to unpack this unusual and unique event that occurred over multiple weeks, her friend Sandra would sit there and quickly paint portraits of the people as they were writing down their secrets. Now when the people left, little did they know that Laura and Sandra would undo those envelopes, and they would tape those papers to the glass storefront in which they were standing outside of. 
So as people would come, they would be able to read the sins and secrets of everyone else. Though they were unnamed, they were still posted. Now, some of them were a little silly, but some of them were absolutely terrible. One of them said the hermit crab was still alive when I flushed it down the toilet. Where another said, I want to see SUVs explode. Another wrote, why are people so selfish, including myself? Another said, I'm dating a married man and I'm receiving financial compensation to keep my mouth closed. Another said that I'm 25 and he's an 86-year-old billionaire. And then another one simply said, I have AIDS. Now, the crazy thing about this little storefront experience, it revealed something to us. As I'm reading this article as a senior in high school, I I realize that there is an inescapable fact that surfaces across all generations and all social standings and all income levels, and it's the fact that people are hiding. The fact that people are hiding. People hide from the police. People hide from their bosses. People hide from their spouses. Children hide from their parents or their teachers. But many people today are hiding from God or attempting to hide from God. Now, am I talking about you this morning? In this room? Someone online? Am I, am I talking about you? Are you attempting to hide from God? Sitting quietly, all is well on the outside? Yet the words that I am speaking are opening up closets within you. Some of us may be hiding in something desperately shameful from our past. Maybe it's an addiction problem, or maybe a bad relationship, or that thing that you stole and you never told anybody about. Or maybe it's impure thoughts. No one knows about the scheming, the lying, the cheating. Your cover is not blown in here this morning. I have not been spying on you. But there is someone who does know. And that someone is God. Wherever you sit this morning. There was a man who blew it big time in the Bible. A man who was godly. A man who was an ancient king. Someone super rich, incredibly powerful. He was smart. He made good decisions for the country and nation in which he left. And like I said earlier, his name was David. And in a moment of weakness, David was basically channel surfing on his palace roof. And he sees a young lady by the name of Bathsheba and she is bathing. And he sees this woman in in, in, his, in that moment of weakness, he was drawn in. Just like pornography draws in people today, still to this day. He was drawn in by his eyes. You know, we're told in the Bible that Satan uses three aspects in temptation. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the, the flesh, and the pride of life. First John tells us that. And in this moment, we see here David being drawn in by the lust of his eyes. Now, I believe it was Job who wisely said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How can I look lustfully upon a young maiden? I believe it was in Job 31 in which he said that. But David in that moment was not thinking about God. He was not thinking about purity. He foolishly lingered and he looked. And what he imagined in that moment, he demanded, and he got what he demanded. Does that sound like our culture? We demand, and so we just get, we take, anybody? The culture around us is that very thing. People live in that way. The Bible tells us that people will live in that way. And so what does David do? But he sends for her, he commits adultery with her, and even though he knows that her husband is one of his loyal soldiers on a mission 
a military mission, he still goes through with his own fleshly desires. But how? How could the man who was anointed to be king, how could the man who sought the Lord day and night, how could the man who was seen as crazy because he used to dance for the Lord, he used to write songs and psalms for God, how could this man fall so hard? David realizes that Bathsheba is pregnant with his son. And so he begins to plot and scheme how he can cover it up. How can I do this so I don't get caught? I'll bring Uriah back. I will place them together so that Uriah thinks that this child is his and my cover will not be blown and it does not work. It does not work. And so what does David do? but scheme a little bit more to place Uriah at the very front of the battle line so that he will look like he was killed in battle for a specific purpose. And David is thinking to himself, I am not going to get caught. The husband will be dead and nobody will think anything of me for taking the wife who's mourning. I'm all set. It's all good to go. No one would pry the king's business. David probably thought to himself it was a close one. But then several months later, this prophet of the Lord comes and visits David and has a little conversation with him, which is what we're going to pick up in 2 Samuel and see this conversation here. And Nathan tells David a carefully constructed story of treachery and theft. Now I want us to read, starting in verse number 1 of 2 Samuel 12. And it says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him, and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children, and it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. In verse number four, now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he says to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. In one of the most stunning moments in Scripture, Nathan says to David, You are that man. After reminding the shepherd-made king of God's incredible blessing, Nathan openly states that something that David had so carefully concealed. Now I want you to jump down to verse number 9. And he says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in your sight? Do you know in Genesis chapter 3, the very thing that Satan used to tempt Adam and Eve with was, did God really say? He got them to question the word of the Lord. What does Nathan say to David? What does he say? Why have you despised? Despised, meaning turned away from, not listened, didn't heed the attention of. I've gotten away. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? Guess what, people? If you go away with nothing else today, please know the moment you stop listening to the word of God is the moment that you've turned your back and become the one who despises the very one who rescued and saved you. Don't walk away thinking that I don't have to listen to God's word. I don't have to read God's word. I don't have to submit to God's word. The, th- the thought of that has already placed you away from the very protection and blessing of God. But he goes on to say in verse number 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be yours. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil 
against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbors, and he shall lie with your wives in sight of the sun. And what does he say in verse 12? For you did it in secret, but I will do this before all of Israel and before the sun. What happens next in the life of, of most people is deniability. Blame shifting, attacking the critic, or some other method of operation because you have gotten caught. But David does not do that here. David sits and he listens to the correction. Now I want you to look at verse number 13. It says, David then says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned. And Nathan says to David, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. Picture of salvation here. In the Old Testament. And he says, Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord, and the child who is born to you shall die. The child who is born to you shall die. Verse 15. And it says, Then Nathan went to the house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. He became sick. Now I have a question for you in this place this morning. Did David deserve... To die. Did David deserve to die? Don't answer out loud. I want you to think about this for a moment. This is not a trick question. I'm not trying to get, get you guys to think one thing and I'm going to completely... Sh- no, did David deserve to die? He had sex with another man's wife. He lied. He betrayed. He murdered. But when David himself answered... After Nathan's story, he himself even said, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. David himself spoke it. I want you guys to know something in this place. Write this down. It's not going to come onto the screen. You never sin alone. You never sin alone. Your sins done in secret will hurt every person in your circle of influence. If you're married, you, your spouse will be damaged because of your sin. If you're a parent, your child will be affected because of your sin. This here, it says that that evil would come from his house, that people would experience pain and suffering, and they didn't even know that David had sinned. And yet people were going to experience the pain, the consequences. And heart-wrenching consequences did follow. The loss of a child... A child died because of the sinfulness of a man. And this slice here out of David's entire life story teaches us something very important. That even the best of men and women can fail. Even the best of men and women can fail. And like David we all have something that we've probably deeply regretted. Something that we have felt ashamed of or embarrassed about. Something that has maybe even altered our course in life. And maybe you're sitting in here or you're online this morning and you're wondering, how can I ever recover from this? How can I erase the guilt How do I find courage and and strength to deal with the coming consequences of my actions? Has God written me off? How do I overcome this particular sin as a follower of Jesus Christ? Anyone ever been in that boat? I've been following the Lord for a long, long time and I still cannot get past this one thing. And Just me and my wife up here. I want to take us, though, to the rest of this story. There's a beautiful, beautiful picture of something that occurs, something that we as believers can learn from, something that should be an example to us as we walk through this life. David's example here that we're going to read in just a moment reminds us that we are caught red-handed by the Lord. And it does not matter how well we try to camouflage our sin. God 
always knows. God always knows. And we are blessed to get a picture of what happens after David blew it. So if you would now turn with me to the book of Psalm chapter 51. Psalm chapter 51. Now bear with me, bear with me here as we are going to read through a good portion Before I do, I want you to look at the heading. If your Bible has headings above the chapters, I want you to look at what it says. My Bible says, A Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in with Bathsheba. So this is after the fact. He's already committed the sin, and he's already been confronted. And just like the people in Manhattan, David goes and he writes out his private personal confession before the Lord. And unlike the people in Manhattan where they they offered confessions to people, David is writing specifically to God saying, this is where I am. Now I want you to look in verse number one, what does he say? But have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Not according to my wife, not according to the previous king, not according to the people who are cut. No, according to yours, God, your mercy, your steadfast love. And he says, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And against you and you alone have I sinned and done it was evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in your secret heart. Purge me, purge me, he says, and I will clean, wash, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall, I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity or my sin. But what does he say in verse number 10? Probably one of the most beautiful things that any believer could pray. But what does he say? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me and restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And this is God's word for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you for this, this account. This man who is seen as a godly individual who gives us a very clear picture of your love and your grace and your mercy and how we can learn from this and what we should do in our moments of weakness and our moments of choices. And so God, I ask right now with these last little bit of time that we have that you would reveal yourself to us through this text that you would show us how we can walk in a lifestyle of repentance. God, use, use this truth to affect our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. The first thing I want us to see from this passage this morning is that we need to take responsibility for our sins. In order to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you must take responsibility for your sin. David kicks off right out of the gate, and he does not fall into a trap, uh, the, the trap of self-justification or shifting of blame. He does not ever say, the devil made me do it. Never. He does not say, I was just having a bad day. He does not say, oh, I only read for five minutes and not for 30. He didn't say, oh, well, I forgot to pray. No, David took ownership of his own actions. He does not point to Bathsheba and her bathing on the roof. He faces the music. He says, in my iniquity, in my sin, my transgression, David is taking all the ownership, and he's saying, I have twisted and perverted something that was good and turned it into evil. 
And David's like, I don't want to take aim at a false target. I have trespassed where I am not allowed to go according to your word. But look at verse number 5. What does David say? Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David believed that he, like every human being, was born a sinner. He knew it. Now, David knew this was not some external force or issue of just bad behavior. David knew that it was an internal issue of natures that were warring against each other. We talked briefly last week about this very thing, about the the warring of the old and the new nature, in which Paul talked about in Romans chapter 7. But what Paul talked about then, a thousand years later, David was already experiencing that warring between his new and his old nature. And though salvation looked differently in the Old Testament, he was still a man who sought and followed after God. And so he was able to experience separation from the very presence of God when he committed sin. And David knew it. He's saying that there's a warring. And he knew that it came down to our choices. Choices. David did not sit here and blame his mother. He did not blame his heritage. And he did not blame blame anyone else. He owned his own actions. He owned them. You don't see in this passage of Scripture that David's trying to cut a deal with God and lessen the consequences. He just comes clean without condition. It's me. I did wrong. And in fact, if you go back to verse number 4, he says, Against you and you only have I sinned. Against you and you only have I sinned. And I have done what is evil in your sight. David is saying, God, I I have sinned against you, and you are the blameless judge. You are. I wish, I prayed, and I pray and pray and pray for people who are believers to come to the realization that when we sin, we sin against God first and then everybody else. Your spouse is not going to save you. Your your spouse's forgiveness cannot get you to heaven. Your child's forgiveness cannot get you to heaven. It is the forgiveness of Jesus Christ through his shed blood that gets you to heaven. And so we have offended a holy God first when we have sinned. A holy God first. And the devoted follower of Jesus Christ, does not rationalize sin. They do not minimize sin. They do not excuse or spin what they have done. They take ownership. Ownership. David lived in denial for a long time before he reached the point where where he was broken enough to say, I have sinned against you, God. Now, I want you to know the words that we read here or a place where David is like, I, I cannot fool anybody any longer. I have thought that I have fooled God, but I have to stop playing games. I can't do this anymore. And as we read through this, we're, we see a desperate and gut-wrenching plea that is offered by a man who seriously misses what he once had with God. A follower of Jesus Christ misses the union with God when we sin. When I do something wrong, I can feel it immediately in my spirit because the Holy Spirit is convicting immediately when I say or do something. Why? Because I want Him to show me where I'm wrong because I want to be changed. And the lifestyle of repentance should be on every follower of Jesus Christ. We should, we should be on our knees before the Lord saying, please forgive me for the things that I have done wrong because I don't want to do this anymore. And that was the very picture of David here. Though he lived in a place for just a moment where 
He tried to fool the people around him. He tried to think that he was fooling God. He could not do it. Why? Because when you stuff that sin down, when you try to cover it up, when you try to lock it away or pretend that it doesn't happen, guess what? David tells you exactly what happens in the life of every single believer when you do that. When he wrote this in Psalm 32, he said, How happy is the man that the Lord does not charge with sin, and in whose spirit is no deceit. What does he say? But when I kept silent, my bones became brittle. From my groaning all the day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was drained as the summer's heat. He's telling you what happens when you are away from the Lord, when you're not responding rightfully to the Holy Spirit. David was saying, I'm in a desert. I'm all torn up. I ache. I'm depressed. I'm dying inside. Anyone ever found themselves in that place before? David was saying that the weight of my secret is killing me. There was a pastor and theologian by the name of Steve Arterburn, and he said there are three reasons why people don't come clean. He said they're afraid of losing their reputation, they're afraid of losing their favorite sin, or they're afraid that it's going to cost them something. Which excuse is yours? Which excuse is yours? When you realize your excuse and you take responsibility for your actions you are then able to ask for and receive God's forgiveness, which is the second thing I need you to see this morning. We need to ask for and receive God's forgiveness. The follower of Jesus Christ knows, knows when my relationship with the Lord is broken and I need to seek forgiveness from a holy God first. Tucked into the very first expressions of David's confession, we read, Be gracious or have mercy to me, O God. According to your steadfast love and your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. He's saying, wash my guilt and cleanse my sin. I don't want it anymore. And when he cries out for mercy, David is pleading with God's character. He's pleading. Has anyone ever been on their knees before begging of God to have mercy upon them? Begging of God, please take this situation away from me. And you're pleading to the very character of God that you know and you've experienced, right? Jeremiah does it throughout the whole book of Jeremiah. He does it in the book of Lamentations. When he's completely overwhelmed with all the death and the chaos that's going on, what does he say? He says, I will call out for thee. I will be reminded of truth. Why? Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. You're the one who gives blessings. You're the one who gives new mercy every single morning, fresh, brand new. He, all he's doing is crying out to the very nature and character of God. And if we go back and we read through the book of Ephesians, we know Paul talks about how not only is God merciful, it says that he is rich in mercy, meaning that it is unbounded, it's limitless in the amount of mercy and grace that he has. So ask for and receive God's forgiveness. David was crying out here for his sin to be erased. Why? Because he wanted to be washed clean. He wants God's work to be done. And what he wants something that only God can accomplish. I want you to look back at verse number 6. He wants to be totally forgiven. What does he say? But behold, you. He's speaking to God. God, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He says, purge me and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all of my iniquities. 
Do you know in the Old Testament there was an herb that was used by the Jews called hyssop? It would be dipped in blood and it was used for a ritual cleansing. Did you know that sin could not be forgiven without the shedding of blood? We learned that in the New Testament. You see it all throughout the Old Testament and all of the sacrifices that were made. But we are told by Paul, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin or no forgiveness. So blood had to be spilt. And right here, centuries before the cross, we find a veiled reference to the Christ crucified. Right here, in this very moment of time. And David is saying, God, I know that innocent blood must be spilt in order for you to forgive me. And I don't understand what all of that means, but please clean me. Wash me whiter than snow. Which brings us to the third thing I need us to see, is that we need to request a work of God's grace. We need to request a work of God's grace. Now, now clean here. David wants to sense again what has not been there for some time. The follower of God misses the presence of God. When you're not in God's presence, you miss it. You crave it. You want more of it. But look at what David prays. One of my favorite, sorry, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. It's a prayer of freedom. He's saying, I want to experience freedom. Church, believer, when you burn when you burn up time and energy covering your sins, all of your joy is sucked away from you. All of it. When you spend all of your time trying to hide, God will seem like a million miles away from you. It'll seem as though your prayers are not heard the Bible will become boring to you when you're trying to live in sin. Church will feel dull to you when you're trying to live in sin. But once David was renewed here in this passage, he pled for God to flood him with joy and to restore eager obedience that he once knew and had. He was begging of God. So let me ask you a question this morning. When was the last time you were on your knees begging of God to overflow you with obedience? When? When was the last time you got on the ground before the Lord and you said, God, please create in me a clean heart. I don't want to be this way anymore. When was the last time you cried out for God for him to do a mighty work in you? Do you know what, what was spoken in Jeremiah about the very work of the Lord? I believe someone posted it on Facebook this week. It says, call out to me and I will answer thee. And I will show you great and mighty things in which you know not. Nothing about them. When was the last time you called out for God to do a great and mighty work in your life? That's what the follower does. The follower is requesting a work of God's grace to happen in their life. But I want you to see something here. David does something very unique in this passage. Something that I believe we need to spend just a moment of time looking at. He says, cast not away your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. But wait, I thought we weren't given the Holy Spirit until Jesus died on the cross. So why is David praying for the Spirit of the Lord to not be taken from him? So I need you guys to put on your spiritual seatbelts with me for just a minute because we're going to go deep. We're going to go deep and I'll do my very best 
to try and explain this in the easiest of layman terms. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was given or placed upon specific individuals for God's work to be done. And there, there could be many things, whether it's to prophesy, whether it was to heal, whether it was to see great fire. We, we saw in the very, very first week of this, when, when, when Elijah called out for God. You see it when Jacob wrestles with an angel of the Lord. There are many things in which the Spirit was used for in the Old Testament. And if you go back and you look at the very early life of David, when he was brought into the council of King Saul, you see many times that it says that the Holy Spirit was upon Saul. You see that it says many times that Saul was being used by the Holy Spirit. But if you look at the life of Saul, you see when he turns away from the Lord, it is very clear from Scripture that it says the Spirit is removed from him. And guess what happens? He's removed from king and he's killed. Saul is killed because the blessing is no longer upon him. And David is saying here, in this very moment of time, he said, God, I don't want my relationship with you broken because I want your presence to be with me all the time. And I don't have the time to get into it today, but I will tell you that it is very clear from Scripture, the entire book of Jude talks about apostasy. It talks about people who denounce faith and walk away from it. And this is exactly what's being talked about in Scripture in the Old Testament. The people who once believed and sought after the Lord, and then they walked away. That's what apostasy is. It's to to renounce and denounce who we once followed. I'm not here to argue with you the, the, the thought of once saved, always saved. That's not what this is about. This is about people saying, I no longer want to follow the Bible because I want to live my way. And David is saying, I don't want to do this. I want to be a follower of God. I want people to know that they see a difference in me. I want people to come to me and and say, what's different about you? What can you show me about God's word? Because I want to have what you have. That's why we talk all the time about discipleship here. That's why in the coming months we're going to teach discipleship. We're going to have a class about what it means to disciple other people. Because it's important and it's crucial for us to know and to understand that we should be investing in people who are just coming along. We should be investing in people and coming alongside people who are struggling. We should be pointing people all the time back to Christ with our life, with our actions, with our speech. We were just talking on Friday night at the men's group. And if you're a guy in here, don't let the summer prevent you from being here on Friday nights at 6.30. And the same thing with the women's ministry. When, when things are going on, women, if you're in here, get to our women's ministry. They're spending time investing and pouring into your life so that you have a deeper understanding of God's Word and, and a much more refreshing and beautiful walk. David was praying, I don't want what happened to Saul. I want fellowship with you. I I want to be changed by you. I want to be renewed by you. I want you to transform me. Spiritual renewal requires you to come clean. It requires you to take responsibility for your sins. It requires for you to ask forgiveness. It requires of you to request a work of God's grace. And that leads us to the very last thought this morning, is that we need to resolve to use past failure for future ministry. We need to resolve to use past failure for future ministry. I want you to look at verse number 13. It says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. 
David is saying, God, I want to be back in the game. I want to be used for your purpose so that other people know your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. David right here is showing us the very picture of discipleship before Matthew 28 was even spoken. I want to teach people about you. I want to teach them about all of your ways. And he's saying, man, I am not worthy of doing this, but I want to take my scars and I want to show people there's a better way. There's a better way. Through the month of April, we did a series called Rerouting. A series that was looking at the well's purpose here, this church. We looked at why we exist. The well exists to impact Ionia with the gospel by us, by our church, learning the Bible and living out biblical truths. That's why we exist. I talked about it for a whole month, but it's something that I never want us to forget why we exist here in this church here in Ionia. For us to learn the Bible and then live out those biblical truths. But then there's a mission that comes along with that. And does anyone in here, you don't have to say it out loud, but does anyone remember what that mission was? Nobody? They are, the, the four G's help us accomplish the mission. But that's, yes, that is a part of it. So we exist to impact Ionia with the gospel by people living or learning the Bible and living out biblical truths, right? And we want to reach everyday people with the gospel, right? We want to change lives through Christ. Yes, do you guys remember that? You guys are like nodding, You're like, yep, the pastor just said it, we got it, yeah, right? And then in that, in that mission, we're required to do something. We need pieces or aspects of ministry that help us fulfill the mission, which is the four G's, right? Gather, give, grow, go. We looked at those, why we gather, why are we here? Why should we give of our, our time, our talents, our treasures, and our touch? Why would we want to do that? What does growing look like? We looked at discipleship, we looked at groups. But the last G is the one that gets missed the most, and it's the going. It's the going. People hear the word go. People hear the word missions. And all of a sudden, we think of people that live in third world countries that live in, in huts with dirt floors. Jesus commanded of us not just to go, but we were commanded to make disciples of all nations. If you turn around, the verse, Matthew 28, 19, and 20 is, is painted right there on the wall behind you. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given to you. David is saying, David is saying, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. So I have a really hard question for you, church, this morning as we close. Who are you investing in? Who are you investing in? Who are you discipling? Who's discipling you? Who's investing in your life? And I don't mean Sundays when you guys walk through the doors at 1030 and you sit here for an hour and 15 minutes. Though this is necessary and it's needed and you should come, but who outside of here is investing in your life?
The follower of Jesus Christ takes responsibility for their sins. The follower of Jesus Christ asks for and receives God's forgiveness. The follower of Jesus Christ requests a work of grace to continue to happen in their life. And then the follower resolves to use past failure for future ministry. So church, what's your next step? Where do you go from here? A question only you can answer for your life. And if you need help answering that question, I will be available right down here. And I say it to you every single Sunday. Don't be scared because I'm the pastor. Because guess what? I'm a sinner just like you. But I can point you to to someone who can change you, who can make you radically different, who can make you love your spouse and your children, not because you've been forced or coerced, but because your heart is different, because it's been changed. Let's pray. God, we just come to you right now in this place. And Lord, I pray that we would take this this passage of Scripture, these truths that have been illuminated for us this morning, and God, I pray that we would walk out of this place knowing what step we need to take before we leave. Maybe it's coming forward because I need to be discipled, or it's coming forward to say, I want to disciple. Maybe it's reaching out to our, our men's ministry leaders or our women's ministry leaders saying, I would be willing and available to disciple people. I want to invest in people's lives. God, I pray the Holy Spirit would continue to convict in this place this morning about where we need to go from here. How do we be followers of Jesus Christ and not just fans, not just the ones who walk in this building on Sunday and leave and they don't seek you and don't want to follow your commands throughout the week. So God, change us. Make us a people who radically are changed and different to the outside world. That when we leave this building, these four walls, that people ask, what is God doing at the well? I want to see with my own eyes the life change. And God, I do not believe it is wrong for us to beg and to ask and to pray of you to change people's lives because that is the business that you're in. God, give us your strength. Help us to walk in the many choices that we have and know that we're not defined by the one or the two big ones the big choices, but that we're defined by the multi-millions of choices that we make every moment of our lives. God, help us to be a people who follow after you with clean hearts and clean hands. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen and amen.